Shall we just pray together? Father God, we just come before you now here today and just thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. And we just bring before you every single person gathered in this place, Lord. We just remember the children in their time of learning and fellowship together. And we just pray that you might, as you speak into our hearts, that you might speak into theirs. So Father God, we just come before you now here today and just pray that your anointing as it is would be upon your word that your word might search hearts and minds, that by your spirit, Lord, you might transform us in the name of the Lord. Amen. Greetings. It's good to see you all here today and may the Lord bless you and enrich your hearts and your lives here this morning. I'd like us to turn to the book of Revelation, can we? And chapter 1, reading from verse 4 through to verse 7. That's Revelation chapter 1, reading from verse 4 through to verse 7. And again, we're going to be looking at a theme that we have been exploring over the last few weeks, certainly when I've been speaking, and I think today we'll probably wrap it up for this moment in time, but certainly we're going to come back to these themes as we progress throughout the year. And what we've been looking at is the whole theme of the return of the Lord. Such a massive theme, one that fills some people with curiosity, some with fear, some with fascination, some with faith. The body of Christ very often has so many different opinions around the meaning and the significance of the return of the Lord. But here this morning, I want us to have an overview really in terms of the question as to why the Lord will return. Now we know that the Bible talks about the when, Even though dates are not given us, we are given signs, we are given pointers and markers in the word of the Lord, prophecies and ministries that seek to guide and help us to make sense of the times. Jesus talked about signs that would come as that which precedes the return of the Lord. But even those signs are nothing more than birth pains. But the defining sign that Jesus said is that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth and the end will then come. So the when is given a lot of coverage in the scriptures. The where also is spoken of in the scriptures. If Jesus is going to return, where will he return to? Is it London, New York, Paris? Sydney. Well, the Bible says in the book of Zechariah that the feet of the Lord will stand once more upon the Mount of Olives. Where's that? It's Jerusalem, Israel, the Middle East. And the angel said to the disciples in Acts 1 that this same Jesus who went up before you will return in like manner. So as he ascended, so he will descend once more and his feet will stand Upon the Mount of Olives. It says this in the book of Zechariah in the closing three chapters. There's a wonderful overview of end time prophecy right there at the back end of the Old Testament. So we have the when, although dates are not given. Then we have the where, Jerusalem. But what about the why? That's what we're going to be looking at here today. So the passage I want to draw your attention to is Revelation chapter 1, reading from verse 4. 
through to verse 7. Greeting to the seven churches. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I want to talk about two things by way of introduction here today. I want to talk, as the word of the Lord comes to us, about the promise of the return of the Lord. Now the book of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The word there is apocalypsis. It means to pull back the curtains in terms of of the person and work of Jesus himself. And the book of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus in his fourfold office as prophet, priest, king and judge. So in chapter 1 we have Jesus, the great high priest, who is revealed as the one who is walking amongst the candlesticks. The candlestick speaking figuratively of the church itself, of which there were seven mentioned in chapter 2 and chapter 3. In those Second chapters and third chapters, we have Jesus, the prophet, bringing the word of the Lord to the church. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, we have Jesus as the king, standing in the midst of the throne and approaching the throne. And then in chapter 6 through to 22, we have Jesus as the great judge, who will come back to judge both the living and the dead. So he is the lamb, the great redeemer, the suffering servant, and he is the lion, the one who roars from Zion, in whose name and word is justice, truth and peace. So those are the two pictures that we have amongst many in the book of Revelation as to who Jesus is. He is the lion and he is the lamb. The lamb who gave his life as a ransom for many, but the lion of Judah, the ferocious priestly king, who roars and brings righteousness and judgment back to the earth. So we have here very much the promise of the return of the Lord. And we're told of it that it is both literal, it is physical, and it is universal. Every eye will see him. He's not going to return as some kind of ghostly apparition. He's not going to come back and it'll be a limited company who will witness that event. Actually, the Bible says every eye will see him, which in itself is a miracle, isn't it? Even those who have pierced him, speaking of his own kinsmen, the Jewish nation and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Talk about a defining moment. Talk about an event that captures the imagination and the attention of everyone on planet earth. And yet the promise of the word of the Lord is that it will happen. We don't know when, but we have signs to point in the right direction. But the one thing that we are called to be is ready, prepared, 
about our father's business. We are to be a people who work tirelessly, pray fearlessly and serve consistently. As we await that day and even though we don't know the hour or even the month or the year, we do know that the promise is real. And we have to be a people who are ready for that day. So the promise of the return of the Lord is clearly taught in Scripture. The purpose is also mentioned. That he will, he will return in order to fulfill all law and prophecy. Jesus is coming back to basically prove that the Bible is true. That the Bible speaks of his return both in the Old Testament... And in the New Testament, in fact, the first prophet in the Bible who declared the second coming of the Lord is actually mentioned in the book of Jude. And his name is Enoch, where Jude says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, said, see, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And he will bring justice and judgment upon all those who have rejected him. Enoch there in the days of Noah didn't speak of the first coming, but rather the second coming of the Lord, right in the early chapters of the Bible itself. And throughout the Old Testament law, prophecy, amongst the Psalms in particular, there are numerous scriptures that talk not only of Christ coming as the suffering servant, namely in his first coming, but also as the splendid king in his second coming. And those are the two pictures that we have of Christ. The lion and the lamb. The suffering servant and the splendid king. So what is Jesus coming back to do? He's not coming back to give his life as a ransom for many. He's already done that. He's coming back as king and as judge. And we're going to be talking about that here this morning. So the purpose of the return of the Lord is to fulfil that which was spoken of under the Old Testament, both in law and in prophecy. Also, secondly, to vindicate his own person and work. See, Jesus came and he gave his life, didn't he? He rose from the grave. He ascended back into heaven. But that was foundational for everything. But there is still part of his work that remains unfulfilled. And that's the promise of the fact that he's going to return to planet Earth. It's a complete work, isn't it? Both comings represent the full picture, the full landscape of everything that God intends to do in and through the person of Jesus. Jesus said he would return. And the fact that he's going to do that vindicates and proves that what he says is true. And he can be trusted. He's given us his word that he will return. And we must be, as the body of Christ, ready for that day. Thirdly, to conclude this present age, the now. Things aren't going to go on as they have done forever. There's going to come a point where history is interrupted by a great crisis. That crisis is all about the inauguration of the age to come, which is point number four. So this present age will come to an end and a new age will dawn. Now it's very hard to make sense of that because none of us have experienced anything like it before. But there will be a generation who will witness these things. Whether it's this generation in our day and age 
or in the generation of our children or even our grandchildren. We don't know. But it will happen. And we need to be ready for that day. So we've talked about the promise of the return of the Lord, very clearly taught. Talks here in the book of Revelation in these opening few verses about Christ himself who was and who is and who is to come. It's past, present and it's future. It talks about some of the names of the Lord here concerning his work and his ministry. He is the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the faithful witness. And there's so much in the book of Revelation about Jesus We tend to think that the book of Revelation is all about the end of the world and it's the Antichrist and the false prophet and the beast and the lake of fire and it's all doom and gloom. But actually, the devil is not the central person of the book. It is Jesus. It is the revelation of Christ. It is him and him alone that stands at the very heart of this glorious prophecy. And if we miss Jesus and leave him or put him to one side, then we're going to wrongly interpret the book in fact it says in the latter parts of the book that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy if Jesus is not center then we've missed the true meaning of what the book is all about it's there to comfort us the Bible says that whoever reads the book is blessed doesn't necessarily mean he who reads it and understands it is blessed. It says he who reads it is blessed because these days await fulfilment. So let's go back to the subject of the why. Three things I wanted to say here this morning as to why will Christ return. Number one, he's coming back to save his people. It says this. In Hebrews 9 and verse 28. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now someone said well. Why would Jesus come back and save us? We're already saved aren't we? Yes. But salvation is more than just a present reality. It's also a future hope. So we are saved. By faith in Christ, by the grace of God, if you know him as Lord and Messiah, then you are saved. But then the Bible says that we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For God who works in us does so according to his will and purpose. So salvation is a process. The word there is the word sanctification. Being changed from one degree of glory to another. Being renewed in the spirit of our minds. Growing and maturing in faith. It's all about a process. So salvation is an event. But salvation then has to be worked through. But then there's an ultimate promise of a time in the future. Around which Christ will return. And he will come back to save us. But the question, therefore, is saved from what? Well, in the book of Revelation, there's a number of things mentioned. For those who are alive during this day, spoken of in the prophecies of Revelation, there are those who are saved out of great trouble. The word there is tribulation. They will be delivered 
in the context of the present tense of their experience at that point. But also, in an eternal context, we who are alive will be saved ultimately from the presence of sin. Now, at the moment, when you receive Christ as your Messiah, you are saved from the pollution of sin, you are saved from its penalty and its power. But there's coming a day when we will be delivered from the presence of sin, whereby no longer will we be around that which is sinful. It's a mystery, and there are many different opinions around how this all fits together. But the one truth that we are told, as Hebrews says, that he will return not to go to the cross, but rather come with a crowd. Not to come as the suffering servant, but rather as the splendid king. And he will come back and save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And some of the parables of the kingdom specific to the return of the Lord deal very clearly with the whole theme of readiness. The parable of the ten virgins in particular talks about those who were ready and those who were not. That's the simple message. Let us not overinterpret these parables and try to read into them what is not there. We have to read out of Scripture and allow the Bible to speak for itself. He is coming back to save his people. This is almost the final act of God. Now, there are questions around, well, when Jesus comes back, how will that affect those on planet Earth? What will he do when he returns? Well, we're going to be looking at some of that as well here this morning. But let us be encouraged that no matter what you are going through or the church will go through during the days mentioned of in the book of Revelation, Christ is coming back and he will have the final word. Do you believe that this morning? He will come back and he will save us. He will deliver us. He will liberate us once and for all. From all that stands opposed to the kingdom and its citizens. Secondly, he will come back and he will silence his enemies. Let's look at the book of Revelation 19, reading from verse 11 through to 16. I'll read it to you. If you've got your Bibles, then read with me. Then it says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name by which he is called is the word of god and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is John speaking of here? It is Jesus. 
But the picture that we have is different to the one that often is painted within many church circles or painted in terms of maybe an understanding that's just purely based upon the Gospels. This is the full picture of Christ himself. But the Bible says that he will come back and he will overthrow his enemies by the presence that he brings and through the very presence that he releases. He overthrows them simply by arriving back on planet earth. By the power of his coming, the enemies of God will be defeated. Yes, the cross stands at very much the heart of this work of the downthrow and the overthrow of the enemy. But what we have here is the final outworking of some of the things that were accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. This rider on a white horse, faithful and true is his name. In righteousness he judges and makes war. You look into his eyes and they are like flames of fire. On his head are many crowns. A name written that no one knows but himself. Clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. Just picture this here today. This is Jesus, our Saviour. Our Lord and our Messiah. This is Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who is victorious. The one who comes and he brings to nothing those who oppose his kingdom. This is the blessed hope that we have. That Christ will have the final word on planet earth. Do you believe that this morning? Christ himself will have the final word in this nation, in this town, in this church, around the world. Christ himself will bring to nothing the deeds of those who oppose him. That is an awesome day, isn't it? That is a fearful day. And one that we mustn't take lightly or see as insignificant. Because there will come a time when God will judge both the living and the dead. A fearful day for those who say there is no God. Those who, with a clenched fist, would shake their hands in the face of God and deny his very existence. Those who think that they can set up their own kingdoms in defiance of God's kingdom, in opposition to God's rule. Those who think that they can gladly go through life without any Adherence or understanding or obedience to the Lord. There will come a day when everyone has to give an account. They will stand before the Lord and the books will be opened. You have to make sure that your name's in the book. If it's not in, make sure it's in. The books will be opened and those whose names are not written therein, the Bible says, will be cast out of God's presence into the lake of fire. These are not pleasant truths, but it is the reality. Of the work of Christ. He will come back to silence his enemies. And then thirdly. He's going to come back to set up his kingdom. Revelation talks about this. Old Testament prophecy talks about it. And the new touches upon it as well. But Revelation 20 says this. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, this again has been a place of great debate 
Theologians have come up with all sorts of different ideas as to what the meaning of this thousand-year period is. Some would say, well, it's not a literal period, it's figurative. It's symbolic. Others would say it's literal. The Christ himself will reign physically on earth. And within this school of thinking and interpretation, there have been three main views that have arisen, each seeking to make sense of what Revelation 20 is all about. The first group is what is called the amillennialists. The word millennium comes from the Latin word meal, which means thousand. So that word millennium relates to seeking to interpret what Revelation 20 is all about. And the amillennialists say, well, the revelation of the word of the Lord concerning the coming kingdom is that Christ reigns now from the first coming to the second coming, that there's no physical reign of Christ on earth. It's symbolic when it's mentioned here in Revelation 20. And there's a bit more mentioned as well about that as you study the subject. So the amillennials will say that there is no literal reign of Christ on earth. Then there is another group called the postmillennialists. These lovely words for a Sunday morning. What do they say? Well, they say that Christ will return after post the millennium. So they would say, well, Christ is going to come back, but the millennium is actually a period during which now the world is being Christianized, the gospel is going forth, and when Jesus comes back, virtually everybody's going to be saved. That's another view, which very much encourages those who are involved with social action and trying to see our communities and our nations transformed and politics and government and all of this and more. There's some truth in that. God calls us to preach the gospel. But then there are those who would hold to another view, which is called premillennialism, which says that Christ will come back universally, literally, and physically, and he will set up his kingdom on earth. And there are well-meaning and godly people who hold to all three views. And there are truths in all of them. Yes, the kingdom of God is now, but it's also yet to come. We are to preach the word of the Lord and we are to see our community saved. But, and I think the view that is most consistent within the word of the Lord itself is the premillennial view. That Christ will come back and he will set up his kingdom on earth. It's a mystery. There are questions that would remain unanswered. But in all of the views, as you take all of the prophecies... Christ himself will come back and set up his kingdom. Now, there are other things around this that pertain to what often is referred to as the rapture. When does that take place? So there's so many different aspects of this whole teaching that we can't really cover. But one thing that we do know, and there are three things that I wanted to say. But one thing that we do know is that we can be confident that God's word will come to pass. What does that mean? Let me just list three eternal truths. God's purposes will be vindicated. Everything that God has said, past, present and future, is true. Everything that he's promised you is true. It's not a lie. He doesn't play cat and mouse or blind man's buff. Serving the Lord is not like that game when you have to pin the tail on the donkey. 
blindfolded. You're unsure as to what to do or in what direction to go. God's word and his purposes will be vindicated. Secondly, God's enemies will be vanquished. God does have enemies. Yes, we know that Jesus, come unto me all of you and I love you. God loves the world. He loves the nations. But he doesn't put up with sin. We need to try and avoid this sentimental view of God. He's not going to put up with sin. And hasn't put up with sin. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. Strange as though that might sound. Because sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we think, Oh, everyone's been put to the sword and people are dying and... Nations being raised to the ground and we come to the New Testament and it's all about love and forgiveness and grace and all of that. But the Jesus of the New Testament is no different to the God of the Old Testament. That's what we need to see. God doesn't put up with sin. But he gives seasons of grace during which times we can be saved. And this is the season in which we are now in. Now is the acceptable day of the Lord. Now is the moment whereby salvation can be received. But as it was in the days of Noah, there'll come a day when the boat will be finished and God's going to close the door. As it was in the days of Noah, Noah was commanded to build the boat, wasn't he? In came the animals. The one job that Noah wasn't given was the job of closing the door. God closed the door. God determined the times and the seasons. Had it been given to Noah to decide, I'm sure he would have let some of his mates in as well. Some friends and neighbours. But God closed the door. And there's coming a day when God's going to close the door and the day of salvation will come to an end. A fearful day. Who knows when that will be. But the enemies of God will be vanquished. And thirdly and finally, God's people will be victorious. Hallelujah. You know, the Bible says, at the end of the day, we win. Doesn't it? We win. From Genesis through to Revelation, with all the nuance around nations and kingdoms and tribes and churches and apostles and prophets, all of this and more, all of the plans of God, everything that we see accomplished, the highs and the lows, what it all boils down to is, in the end, God wins. And we win. You win. May not feel like it. There are those mentioned in the book of Revelation who have given their lives for the gospel. One ancient historian, Tertullian, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There are those mentioned who gave their lives for the gospel. And around the world today, there are people giving their lives for the gospel. The persecuted church... God is moving in these nations as indeed he's moving in other nations. Don't have to wait for persecution to see God move. Let's let's come before the Lord before these days come and be faithfully about our Father's business. So why is Jesus coming back? Well, he's coming back to save his people. He's coming back to silence his enemies. And he's coming back to set up his kingdom. There's so much in here 
that can be further studied and looked at. And I encourage every single one of us to really go back to the word of the Lord and study diligently around just seeking to explore some of these truths. But we know this, that the Lord himself will reign. The Lord himself does reign. He will have the final word. Amen. Let's just pray together, shall we? Father, today... This of all days we thank you that we have the grace to live and by which we stand. We thank you, O Lord, for the truth of heaven. We thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for Jesus. Oh, the ruler of the kings of the earth, this faithful and true witness, the firstborn from amongst the dead, Lord. We thank you for the one who has been raised and in him we too are raised. We thank you, O God. We praise you and we honour and we worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen.